Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to another episode of Hacked into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders, brought to you by Nexus IT Security Group. This is your host, Ben Hotailing. We get the distinct pleasure of grilling Joshua Danielson today. Welcome on, Joshua. Hey, good afternoon, Ben. Good to be here. Joshua is the Chief Information Security Officer at Copart, brings over a decade of experience securing critical business systems, also holds a master's degree in information management, and is on the Cybersecurity Advisory Board at SMU. We're going to do things a little bit different today. I'm going to fire off a lot more questions to Josh than normal so we can cover breadth of topics. But first off, let's get things kicked off, learning a little bit more about your story, Josh. How did you get into cybersecurity and uh, how did you get to the level you are today? Well, I'd say I was very fortunate in my career. I mean, very early on, I actually got the opportunity to choose the high school I actually went to based on the fact that I offered a Cisco Academy. And getting that really technical hands-on experience very early on just gave you a huge leap up on everyone else. So I was very lucky in that regard. From there, I continued on that kind of network administrator route of doing things and eventually got a peak interest on uh, security. This was probably maybe in the early 2010 timeframe or so. I started seeing more and more issues pop up around security uh, items and really failures around like the people aspects, right? And that's what really intrigued me to, to sh shift over gears and do that move. From there, I got to start actually on the uh, Department of Defense side of things with a government contractor and been in the information security industry since. Been hopping around from private sector, public sector, to my current role right now with Copart, heading up the security show here. Fantastic. Well, let's get going with some questions. First off, how would you define the role of the CISO? Well, it's comparable to every other position in the C-level executive suite, right? Your first job is to be a business leader first. And the way you add that value is by understanding the InfoSec capacity of doing things. And how to actually marry the two is always the, the magic sauce. However, early on in my career, I remember seeing, uh, as VoIP technologies were taking off, the CTO, the chief of telephony officer, right? And uh, we're in a very critical stage right now. If organizations aren't able to continue to justify the position of CISOs and otherwise, I mean, we're going to continue to see this you know, shift and mold and whatnot, hopefully not the way of the CTO, the old definition, and hopefully into a greater meaning. Absolutely. So looking ahead, what do you think the role of the CISO will look like you know, three years down the road, five years down the road, or even farther out? Well, you're starting to see a few more kind of blended on the risk side of things, right? So you're seeing this at a title perspective. So you're starting to see like cybersecurity risk officers, for example, and larger organizations are having both roles and whatnot. So I'm starting to see a few more actually have just a single role and kind of phrasing that type of uh, fashion of a risk uh, officer type of role. I think the real reason why is the senior leaders are still having problems tying back their CISOs to their business aspects. And that's something a big area for improvement for CISOs across the entire industry as a whole. So you're seeing more, a little bit more of a variety in definition and uh, what the industries continue to look for. So, you know, a lot of the CISOs that I've talked with shared struggles with you know, building effective relationships or actually having a seat at that executive or board level. What do you think in, in your um, experience has helped build effective relationships at that uh, executive and, and board level? 
Well, I mean, it's similar to the interview process when you're maybe looking for a new job. I mean, it's good to know the company, get to know the people, right? Do your research. Same thing with your board of directors is get to know your board. It'll really help in translating some of these InfoSec issues and help them resonate a little bit better. Tie your back goals back to theirs, right? If their main objectives around availability, talk about how you're helping maintain the availability for critical services within your organization, right? Key piece of that is understanding their communication style. Some leaders are story-based. And some of those are maybe metrics-based and everything in a blend or everything else between. So each organization is always different. I think one of the biggest lessons learned that I had earlier in my career is like the the success model you had in your previous organization is probably not going to, I'll just say it's not going to translate to the next organization you probably join, right? Each one is always going to be different. So understanding those nuances and what they're actually looking for and then how to actually communicate them are the two key pieces. Sure. Now, looking ahead again, do you think that the CISO will, on a broad scale, be looked upon as that executive level for most organizations? I mean, I do. If you want to take IT as a general whole right now, you're starting to see more CIOs and CTOs become CEOs or joining more boards of directors. And I suspect that we'll see this trend continue as InfoSec continues to get raised on that pedestal, if you will. And I'd like to see more CISOs get converted to maybe CTOs and CIOs and so on and so forth, the boards of directors, CEOs, and otherwise. So uh, if this trend continues, I suspect we'll continue to see this upwards mobility. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they got to be there. Let's talk a little bit about threats and, and vulnerabilities. What do you think is the biggest threat currently to enterprises across the globe? Well, I mean, (laughs) you could talk about something, maybe uh, the people is probably still the number one issue, right? I mean, how do you actually continue to one of the biggest threats right now is around phishing attacks. We still haven't got a great handle of how to actually tackle this. We try and take solid backups. We try and do some end user awareness training and whatnot, and we're still seeing a lot of things get through. So in the latest news, people are still the hardest part of the security equation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, outside of end users, what do you think? I mean, you can see in the, again, the Equifax breach and otherwise, right? I mean, we're still having a hard time with simple fundamentals, which is like patch management. And I think senior leadership is starting to learn how difficult this really is. We're starting to see some advancements, so I'm a little bit encouraged if you want to talk about something specific like patch or vulnerability management, solutions that can maybe better prioritize and add some intelligence to what those vulnerabilities are, are coming as far as like our scale ranking system. Some solutions, I'm starting to see a few more, I won't name any names, but can help mitigate some of those unpatched vulnerabilities on, on systems before you have that opportunity to actually patch them. Sure. And of course, last but not least, but uh, cloud. Cloud is starting to continue to change this as well. We're seeing more and more organizations switch to these kind of blue-green deployments where they're not even patching their systems, or they're actually just ripping the systems entirely off and then replacing them with one that's actually patched, right? And I think... Um, I forget which vulnerability was WannaCry or is probably one before that, but when it actually hit, Amazon AWS was able to update all of their systems uh, that are internet-facing within, I think, a four-day time frame. I mean, that's phenomenal for an organization of that size to be able to do that. So those are probably three areas of advancement I look for in the next, next few years or so uh, around patching slash vulnerability management. So are you pro-public cloud then? I am. I am. I think um, it's still a little bit of a challenge for InfoSec professionals, but there's obvious benefits. I mean, Amazon uh, AWS reInvent is just wrapping up their conference right now. And if you didn't take a look at that, take a look. I mean, they've done a bunch of just incredible things to help out InfoSec professionals, helping efficientize uh, operations to reduce overall impact for the organization too. So there's some really interesting things happening right now. It's an exciting time. Speaking of that, I heard one of their big wigs at, uh, at that conference say that every role is a security role. This isn't the first time I've heard it, but I think it definitely made people think a little bit. What are your thoughts to that? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, we just hinted in a few questions to go, right, when we talk about fishing, right? If you, have, you can do everything A to Z and get all the budget dollars and have all the teams and everything else work exactly the way you'd want it to do, but if you're not able to get your end users on board with this and get at least somewhat aware given the current landscape, you're probably still going to have some problems with these common issues such as fishing and otherwise. So, yeah, a- absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, in your industry specifically, are there any unique vulnerabilities that you've experienced? Well, we start off with what we're really trying to protect. I think the reputation is number one. In our organization, we're very lucky to be one of the predominant organizations within our industry vertical. So reputation is by far number one. Credit cards and, you know, those types of things can be replaced, but the customers, (laughs) that's quite a bit harder. We're pretty fortunate in our case as far as the type of data we're actually dealing with. We work in the salvaged uh, vehicle area. So we deal with some things such as title, driver's licenses, and otherwise, but we really don't handle anything such as social security numbers, we made a big emphasis for the sensitive data that we do have. So say, for example, PCI data and otherwise is the best way to secure it is to not have it at all. So we've been ex- externalizing a lot of uh, our data through either tokenized solutions, maybe, so for example, a P2BE card reader, maybe some payment service gateways to make sure that it's not even handled in-house and we actually can externalize it completely to a larger organization that just specializes within that domain of expertise. Okay. Moving on swiftly, what are some challenges that your team has had or experienced in identifying security talent? (laughs) I would say the majority of my time is probably spent in this area with the people aspect. Common philosophy in InfoSec is be harder than the next guy. Well, in order to be harder than the next guy, you're going to have to have better people than the next guy as well. There's obviously a shortage. So finding out ways you can be a little bit more creative and a little bit more innovative in working with talent, whether it be leveraging some cloud services from an AWS such a cloud service provider, or figuring out how you actually make the best way with the talent you can right now. So we've been looking at bringing in actually experts from other core competencies within IT and otherwise to turn them into cybersecurity experts. And uh, we've been having a lot more success, I can say, in the past year or so doing that. Absolutely. Sounds fairly similar to Brett Kelsey, VP and chief technology strategist at McAfee. Just had him on and you know his thoughts were, were similar, capitalizing on what you got now and finding ways to identify that talent you know, moving forward. The gap's upon us. We got to figure out how to be successful with, with what we got. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can say at Copart, in our organization, I mean, we have a fantastic intern program and we're able to pull some of the local to- uh, top talent here at the very early stages. And with just a little bit molding and a little bit of, of handholding, I mean, we're able to get both tremendous value for the organization in reducing risk, but also a great experience for a lot of these interns. They're getting opportunities that they maybe wouldn't have had gotten before, maybe just a few years ago. So it's definitely a, a win-win on both sides. Mm-hmm. Now, are you using anything in particular or any techniques to you know, train up employees, growing skills? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's certain opportunities that we have at Copar that maybe for example, larger organizations wouldn't offer, right? So the ability to contribute to open source projects, we're actually getting ready to release our first open source project, hopefully in uh, Q1 of next year. The ability to actually communicate with the local community and whatnot too, whether it be presenting at uh, local conferences, getting more involved in that type of fashion too. So whether it be blogging or whatever it may be, right? That's just not an opportunity I know large organizations aren't able to uh, offer. So it's recognizing what you actually do have your strengths are and how you can actually properly present that and sell that to, uh, to the external world. Absolutely. Sounds great. Moving a little bit back in the conversation, when it comes to end-user training programs, in your opinion, your experience, what makes one successful? 
I'd probably point out three things. Is one, first, we're creating a program that actually can relate to employees, and this is making the the lessons learned very personable for for individuals. So you may want employees to lock their that their cabinet drawers so they can protect com- sensitive company files, but maybe phrasing a way that maybe we want you to lock your desk so you can protect your purse or your wallet or your personal belongings. It makes it a little bit more personable, and they take much more ownership when they're doing that piece. Second, and I think this is probably the most common mistake I see in, in user training and awareness, and sometimes it's because of compliance concerns and you have to say these things, but ignore the things that employees already have to comply with. You have a very limited window to be able to reach out to your employees, whether it be during initial onboarding or your annual training and awareness. Don't waste that precious time telling them that they have to have an eight-character password. They're going to have to do that anyways. <laughs> so don't waste any of your precious time and ignore those types of things that, ignore, uh, that employees are already going to have to comply with anyways. And third and not least is uh, emphasize a common theme or a single t- topic. I mean, again, you have a limited amount of time frame. Focus on one common lesson. It may be phishing. It may be picking good passwords, for example, whatever it may be. But as soon as you start mentioning good passwords, the phishing, the endpoint protection, the uh, incident response, and you try and cram that in to maybe a 20-minute initial onboarding session, you're going to lose a lot of that. So that's just one common thing. That's something actually we've done a great job here at Copart doing and doing all the campaigns and with the marketing teams and partnering with them to put posters and education out. And we just rotate it. And we rotate it maybe on a quarterly basis of what that point of emphasis is. It could be stuff we're seeing in the wild that we want to better educate our employees or so on and so forth. Sure. Definitely sounds effective. What are some signs of an ineffective end user training program? Well, <laughs> we try and actually measure this in a few kind of interesting ways, but probably the most is, uh, is the amount of feedback you're actually getting back from your end users. I mean, it's one thing I make a point of. I'll just go randomly ask folks on the floor in our call center and say, hey, do you know what to do if they actually see a security incident, particularly if we just had a huge campaign? And we'll try and do some polling and some surveys and whatnot too, right? I like to be a little bit more personal in that realm. And if you're getting the feedback and it's not matching up for what your programs are trying to accomplish, that's probably not a great sign that you need to reevaluate how you're actually communicating your message. So definitely following up is, is critical. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you can't have metrics, it's a little bit difficult to manage how effective your end user training awareness programs are, but that's that's definitely an effective uh, metric. Keeping the employees engaged. I mean, I could say when we first launched off our phishing campaigns, uh, we had quite a bit of area for improvement, but uh, we were able to close that gap in a uh, small amount of time. So using the metrics wherever you can is is helpful, but I always like to use a blend of kind of that personal slash uh, critical data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This next question, it's more of a feeling than, than anything else. So with all the recent news and you're seeing high-level executives losing their jobs due to these attacks, what kind of shift have you noticed or feeling ha- has changed over the last, you know, let's say, year when it comes to executives putting importance on IT security because you know, maybe they just want to make sure that they're keeping their job? <laughs> It definitely makes my life a lot easier when I have to come to uh, come to the table with a, an increased budget or an increase in headcount and whatnot. But I'll break it into two pieces. I see kind of some pros, but also some cons to the, the current situation. On the pro side of things, the additional visibility is great, right? I mean, everyone in marketing knows to never miss an opportunity to showcase your team's efforts. Could be when the latest shell shock vulnerability comes out that you may be already patched against it or maybe already in progress and able to execute very quickly. Um, just recently, we saw the issue with Uber, right, and the ability to encrypt credentials within GitHub repos. Maybe that's a project you already have in works and whatnot, and it, it looks awesome. It looks great if you've already done those things or you have a solid plan in place. But more on the con side, we know as security professionals, there's only hundreds of ways that a breach can happen. If you pick two or three of those stories throughout the year, it can almost get a false sense of assurance that we're actually protected across the entire board, where maybe you just kind of got lucky, right? You just 
pick those individual ones, and you just happen to be working on a project for those ones too. So it may be able to give an inaccurate display of security posture, right? I mean, again, it goes to knowing the communication styles. At the senior leadership level, we're going to want to see that empirical data, maybe some uh, risk assessment results and reports and whatnot, or they just love the story base. And I think I'm probably a little bit more concerned of seeing senior, senior executives in that last category for story-based, right? It can give them that false sense of security. Yeah, that's, that's great insight there. Do you think information security at this point is more of a technical or a business function? The answer is, I think, is it, it depends. So some organizations that may be more in the startup type of role, right, their CISO is going to have to be more technical and more hands-on. And you're starting to see a few more companies like in that realm. But overall, I mean, it is moving more towards that business type of function. And we alluded to that earlier as far as the change in, in titles and whatnot. And the CISO roles continue to evolve. You can see where it's positioned on the org chart. I'm starting to see more and more move out of the CTO slash CIO ranks, even though we're most organizations still leaving it there, but some are going to legal, some are going on the finance side of things. And that's really showing that organizations are being a little bit more thoughtful of how they actually place the role. It may be right for you, but it may not be right for me. So that's kind of the, the, the key piece. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned before, the CISO's first job is to be a business leader first. Yeah, that's that's definitely an important piece. Okay, last question before we get into overrated, underrated, moving along nicely here. Have you ever executed a full-scale security test, uh, you're testing physical security and system penetration testing, uh, etc.? If so, you know, what was that experience like and, and what did you learn? Yeah, so I mean, without diving into too many specifics, is pen testing useful, right? And I, I think they are really for two use cases. Other than that, I, I feel that pen tests are usually not the, uh, the best mechanism to get that constant feedback loop because the vast majority of the time, organizations already know you have flaws, and you can usually find those weaknesses out through other means that are a little bit less resource intensive. But there are two use cases that stand out where I think pen tests are actually useful. First is you want to validate a use case where you think you're secure against a fairly specific type of threat or attack, and you just want to get validation for it, right? So your organization might be expanding operations in China, and you want to ensure that, for example, a dual firewall is blocking malicious traffic as it traverses the network, right? So that's, that's kind of a valid use case. The second piece is uh, where I've used pen testing and it's been very useful is when testing an incident response program. You think, are we as quick as we think we are? Doing a pen test is useful, but beyond those two, uh, I typically think there's better ways to get that constant feedback. All right, well, let's jump into to overrated, underrated. Let's get things kicked off with the vulnerability of the week, the Mac root vulnerability. Is that overrated or underrated? Just right, if that's a category. <laughs> People are pretty stunned. In fact, I, I kind of like to use my mom as a barometer. When I tell my mom I can log into her computer without a password and have full access to everything, she kind of freaked out, right? <laughs> so I would say maybe just about right, maybe a little bit underrated. Okay. Okay. Yeah, great. Next one. When it comes to being successful within a security role, the security mindset, is that critical to being successful? Or do you think that you can be successful without having that natural security mindset? No, I mean, I would say that's actually underrated. And we're seeing in some of these breaches that are actually happening. And we just look at these security professionals and we're like, what the heck are you guys doing, dude? I mean, some of these are just kind of a face palm type of moment, right? Maybe you expect it from some of these more immature organizations that are maybe just getting started and whatnot. But I mean, some of these are some pretty large organizations and they really should have better processes uh, around this. I mean, I think it was Tuesday of this week that uh, 
the NSA had released uh, top-secret information on their <laughs> S3 buckets within their AWS accounts. It's stuff like that that really has me more concerned. So, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. All right, last one. We'll let you go. You already kind of answered this question for me, but we'll see. Penetration testing, underrated or overrated? <laughs> I would say overrated for sure. Again, I think, can you get that same value add? Can you get that feedback in some type of other fashion, whether it be patch management, credentials management, or whatever it may be? I typically find that most organizations can get that feedback back more quickly or actually more effectively uh, in some other type of fashion besides having to spend 30, 40K to bring an external party in to do that type of evaluation. So I understand we got to do it, but uh, yeah, I, I encourage organizations to do it a little bit more, be a little bit more judicious with their uh, thought process. Fantastic. Well, hey. We covered a lot. This was great. Really appreciate it, Josh. Thanks for coming on. Likewise. Thanks, Ben. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure. <laughs>